home. As weird as that sounds, to me that's a that's a nice smell. It's the weird things you associate because I was that's a little kid in it. All right, let's open up in prayer. Dear Lord, thank you so much for this morning. Thank you for the opportunity to be here. Thank you for your word. Thank you for your consistency. We just pray that you be glorified by all that we say and do here this morning, both in Sunday school and in the service. We give you this time in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. We... It apparently locked. Okay. We are in the Renaissance. We've been going through church history. And, and every time I tell people that haven't gone through this, or tell them we're doing church history, they're like, oh, of your church. I'm like, well, yes, with a capital C. You know, the whole church. So we're in the Renaissance, and uh, we're in the second part of things really starting to get wobbly and, and, and fall apart. Uh, now, because Nikki's here and she requested me to do this, oh, Nikki's not here, but she requested me to do this. Um, she wanted to hear the Lord's Prayer in Middle English, because last week, if you were here, we talked about Middle English and Wycliffe writing the Bible in Middle English and getting in trouble for writing the Bible in Middle English. The whole church went, stop it, you can't give the Bible to normal people, it's only for priests. Um, so uh, when I was talking about Middle English, she, she asked me if I would read a little bit uh, afterwards, and I realized that uh, when my college prof was teaching us about Middle English, he had suggested a certain way of pronouncing it that, as it turns out, isn't the way that anybody else pronounces Middle English. So. Uh, to me, it sounded almost Dutch when, when he did it. And apparently, there's two different schools of thought as to how Middle English actually sounded. There are some people that say it sounds, sounded almost Scandinavian still. If you've ever heard Old English, it sounds like Swedish almost. Um, because there was this thing called the Great Vowel Shift. Strangely, they weren't, they weren't calling it the Great Vowel Shift while the vowels were shifting. Thank you. I was waiting for you to pop up. Um, but... Uh, so some people will say, oh, you, you got to pronounce it like you're a Swede speaking English. Um, other people say, no, 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 no. It's in the middle of the, the vowel shift. It wasn't like a flipping a switch. Oh, by the way, now we're going to pronounce E's like this from now on. It took 150 years to do all this. So some people will say, no, no, no. It sounds like an Irishman making fun of a Swede speaking English. So we're going to... We're going to list the two completely different ways that Wycliffe's Lord's Prayer might have sounded. Just so that you get an idea of what English was at this particular time in history, all right? So just enjoy it for a second. <laughs> And for who are to whose allegations, as well for who are to allegations, and made up is not important at the end, but the letter is for evil, I mean. English, right? Now it's not old English, it's not modern English, it's middle English. Now, personally, I tend to lean a little more toward the, it takes a while for the vowels to shift. So the way I would tend to think that this was probably, uh, sound would be a little bit more like the second way, because then this bleeds more into like Shakespearean English, which would have sounded vaguely Irish at the time. So uh, this is another way of saying it. 
those nouns are in the classroom. But to do those, what do you think? Comment. That's what I'm saying. Yeah. And, and that's the. I'm not going to go into the whole linguistic part of it. But yes, uh, when you listen to. Uh, we were just talking about this on Friday. If you were thinking about how Shakespeare and Shakespearean actors would have done Shakespeare, ironically, it would have sounded more like that. I mean, at the time, the London accent actually sounded very Irish in terms of the lilt, the trilling R's, and the uh, kind of rounded vowels. So. It wouldn't have sounded the way most of us ever heard Shakespeare in English class. But that was for Nikki. Who's not here. Who's not here. She's here in the building. She's, She's here in the building. She's just not in the room. All right. Let's get into the actual history stuff. But now that you have a sense of, that's about where we are in history. English sounds like that. So you can imagine German sounds like that version of German. Spanish, you know, about that far back. It's 500 years ago. It's a while back. You'll also notice every time we go to a new section of history, we get a new picture of what a council is. That's for Randy, because Randy got a little frustrated that we had the same picture of council over and over again. So this is a, this is a renaissance council. Thank you. You're welcome. At this point in history, the church has decided that councils fix everything. We can fix stuff with the council. Boom. Problems? Get yourself a council. So 1408, Council of Oxford. Let's decide stuff for everybody. This will be great. Let's ban the Bible. Because that's what churches do, right? This is good. Ban the Bible for people? Or Ban the Bible for people. Okay. The Archbishop of Canterbury said that you cannot have a Bible in English. It's wrong. It's immoral. Um, and so if you do it under the orders of King Henry IV, uh, we'll burn you. We'll, we'll set fire to you because you're a heretic. If you try to translate the Bible into the vernacular of the people, because it is inherently dangerous to do that. Because councils fix everything, right? Because this way, you'll keep bad things from happening if you keep the Bible out of the hands of the people who shouldn't have it. So, the Lollards, the people we talked about last week, the people who followed John Wycliffe and his teaching, uh, the two worst crimes that they were accused of, number one, they denied transubstantiation, which is what? Does anybody know? Yeah, in communion, that when the priest blesses the, the, the uh, bread and the wine or the cup or the juice, the way we have it, um, they physically change into the blood and body of Jesus Christ. Uh, in fact, as one writer said in the Middle Ages, if you were to cut somebody open right after they ate communion, you would find blood and flesh in their bellies. Which, of course, you would um, if you cut them open. Never mind. So, um, the, no, seriously, that's what somebody did. They did it one time and they said, see? And you, well, think that through. Um, so, the, but the lawyers denied the transubstantiation. And they encourage people to pray and read the Bible for themselves. They're heretics. Should get burned at the stake, which means I, I totally get burned at the stake. So um, not a lot of fun time for people like me at the time. Now, uh, they, 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 like I said, the council declared it's actually dangerous. They said, we therefore command and ordain that henceforth no one translate the text of Holy Scripture into English or any other language as a book, booklet or tract of this kind, lately made in the time of the set John Wycliffe or since, or that hereafter may be made, either in part or wholly, either publicly or privately, under pain of excommunication. If you even make a Bible tract, if you even jot down part of scripture for yourself, excommunication, unless you get an okay from the church authorities. If the church authorities sign off on it, it's okay. By the way, they never sign off on it. But at least they got that nice little caveat on there. Why would they say that it's dangerous for people to have a translation of scripture in their own language. Yeah? 
Okay, well, yes, yes. In fact, that's what keeps happening, right? So Waldo noticed this, what Wycliffe noticed, well, that's what Jan Hus is going to notice. That's what all these different people go, hey, now that I'm reading this thing, I don't think we do this. Like Josiah did, but what else? Yeah. They don't believe that people are capable of interpreting their Right, they're like, you don't have the schooling, you don't have the education, and you don't have the holiness to interpret this correctly. It is dangerous for me to put it in the hands of a little layperson. Uh, they wanted the church to be one. They didn't like all these sex going out or, yeah. or changes. Everybody has to be of the Catholic Church yep. or we're going to lose our taxes. Right. So at, I'll even give them the credit where they might go, we, we want everybody to have the same view because yeah. we have the correct view and we want everybody to have the correct view. And it's dangerous because you never know what this interpretation is going to be. I mean, if we let Cliff interpret it, he's going to have his own wildly different sect. So it said it's also dangerous to allow people to pray on their own. So the church especially declared it a heresy punishable by burning to teach children to pray on their own. You can't pray outside of a church building. You can't pray if there's not a priest there. Because the whole point of a priest is to stand between you and God. So if you have no priest between you and God, you're saying you could stand directly before God. Of course, that's not true. Therefore, it is a heretical, heretical, heretical thing to allow yourself to pray without a priest around. To pray outside of a church building. It's officially legal now to actively live out your Christian life anywhere but within a church building. So it was okay to murder and do all that stuff, because that's not what I No, no, well, no, you, it would be wrong to murder and things, but it's just you can't do any kind of like Christian practices, like read a Bible, pray, uh, take communion, anything like that, unless there's a priest right there. Um, and the reason I went to that is the whole, eh, it kind of depends. If you've been given an indulgence, if you have paid ahead of time to murder and get forgiven for it automatically, by this time in history, you could do that. So if you're like a noble and you paid enough money in advance, I'm going to go on crusade, I'm going to rape, I'm going to murder. If I, if I give you enough money to the, to, the, to the church, can I automatically be forgiven for that in advance? And they're like, yes, but only two murders. Three rapes, but only two murders. Any more than that, and you're going to have to do something more. Okay, I'll just have to be judicious. Um, do we still deal with the sort of with the effects of this sort of thing, even in our church today? How so? How, how does Christianity still deal with this? Yeah. There's kids today in our society that are being um, reprimanded for having a Bible with them at school. Um, the okay. big thing with the church and state and all that stuff. Well, that's a little different because that's the state saying we don't like the church, as opposed to the church saying we don't like you doing it differently than us. But you're right; it's still a what about this whole, you can't be a Christian any, outside of a church building? <coughs> well, a little bit like that, but it's more um, the church is a holy place. You know, you can't swear or do anything like that in the church. It's gone. You know, it's yeah. not as bad as if you do it in a bar than if you do it in church. Right. Just like we, we talked about, there is nothing wrong with saying, I really feel like I want to come into a set-apart place and pray, like going to our sanctuary and pray. That's, that's swell. But it, it is interesting how all run into people still feel like, I have to get to a church building because I want to pray. You go, you can pray anywhere. You can, you can pray in the shower. I mean, if you want to pray in the sanctuary, great. It's set apart for that. But it's not like it's consecrated ground and it's so, you know glows and it's so fundamentally different from any other place. No. You, know, you can go anywhere and be a Christian. Uh, or people feel like, like somehow praying, reading your Bible, um, uh, thinking about God, that is a Sunday morning thing. And then the rest of the week, the other 160 
six hours are mine, you know, to do other things, secular things. And we did this to ourselves. It's still the ripple effects of a lot of this stuff. All right. 1408, also the year that Zygmunt, uh, or Sigmund, or however you want to say it, Zygmunt of Luxembourg, who's the king of Hungary, and he's eventually going to be the emperor. But Zygmunt founded something called the Order of the Dragon. Now, what's interesting is we look at this today and we go, oh, something satanic. No, it's the opposite of that. Do you remember the whole Hospitallers Templars thing, these orders of Christian knights who are going to bring order to the world and basically studly monks? So they're going to go pound people for Jesus. The Order of the Dragon is, is the same sort of thing. We're going to go, we're going to go destroy Satan's evil in the world with swords. That's what we're going to do. That's what we need to do, just like the Templars and people did. Remember the whole legend of St. George? St. George and the dragon, St. George who kills the dragon in Libya? Never actually happened, but there's a wonderful story about this great early knight. And if you'll remember, he didn't look like this. He actually looked more like this. If you remember, this is Georgias, who was uh, the, the captain of Diocletian's Imperial Guard, who was an overt Christian, and Diocletian's like, I, I, I've made a rule that I've got to kill all the Christians. Please don't be a Christian. And Georgias said, I'm going to be overt. I'm going to be loud about my Christianity. If you need to kill me, I'm like the, I'm like the best guard you've got. I'm extremely popular. If you need to kill me, you need to do it publicly. And so Diocletian was forced to, to kill him very slowly, very painfully, very publicly for his faith. And the entire time he kept spouting off his faith and like half the imperial guard became Christians as a result. So it, it's like, this guy rocks, not because he killed a dragon, but because of the stuff he actually did. But um, what Zygmunt said was, the church keeps founding these various orders and they keep getting wonky. They keep getting heady with power. We're going to take the most important families in Eastern Europe and we're creating our own order. It's not a church order, it's it's a bunch of families getting together and doing this. You know, all the, all the crown heads and nobles and things like that. We're going to come together as holy knights. And you can kind of see where he's going with this. It's like, oh, instead of just fighting each other, we're going to fight for Jesus. Oh, that's great. So, two of the most important families of the group of Eastern Europe. Anybody want to hazard guesses to any of them? No, not yet. One of them is the Draculas. House Draculeshti of Wallachia from which we eventually get Vlad Tepish, Vlad the Impaler, right? The guy that was so bloodthirsty that Bram Stoker went, yeah, that's my vampire. That's what I'm going to do. That family was one of these families. Another one is the Bathory family of Slovakia, from who came Elizabeth Bathory. Anybody know who Elizabeth Bathory is? Ever hear that story? Serial killer killed 600, at least 600 women in her own uh, nation, supposedly, according to legend, so that she could bathe in their blood and remain youthful. That was the legend of it. She's basically nutty. These are two of the families of the Holy Order of the Dragon. So were they already really messed up awful families? Oh, yeah. But so again... Why did he pick them? Well, okay, again, Zygmunt is looking for zeal, and these families are messed up, but they still technically support the church. And you have to understand, and these are people who have never read the Bible. And so as long as you go to church and do your churchy things, you're a good Christian. If you murder 600 people, actually, it's a whole interesting story with Elizabeth Bathory. It's that it was the, the local priest that actually went, oh, you stop that now, once he figured this out. He was kind of the, the, the square-jawed good guy of that particular story. 
because the church, and it was a big deal that the church finally went, I know you give a lot of money to the church, I know you're very supportive of the church, but you're also murdering young women all over the place. I'm sorry, you get deposed. Kind of a big deal. Anyway, big huge thing. And when the Ottoman Turks started invading the, the Eastern European nations, the symbol of the dragon became huge. Everybody was, was trying to, to focus on that as kind of a, um, well, like I said, a rallying point. You know, this, when you see this, 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 when you see this, this is us standing against the Turks. And you'll see it all over the place in, in Renaissance art and in crests and in tapestries and things. When you do, you can stop and say, this is, for the most part, this is European perspective of we will fight evil where we find it. Because just like St. George killed the dragon, we will fight the dragon. It's a little something fun to think of as you're looking at pictures and things. Anyway, 1409. Council, because councils fix everything, right? So the Council of Pisa is going to deal with that nasty schism. Remember the Western schism we talked about last week? There are officially two popes, both of whom are appointed by the exact same body of cardinals. They are just exactly as official as one another. So you've got one pope sitting over here at Avignon, and, and then you've got one pope sitting over in Rome, neither of which like each other. And all of Europe chooses sides as to which ones they're going to want. The red ones go, oh, Avignon. The blue ones say, oh, Rome. The, the discolored ones um, are sitting there going, eh. So um, <laughs> that's the official thing. <laughs> so, so this council piece that says, it's not getting any better. We're going to fix this. We're going to bring the top theologians and cardinals out of Rome, including a guy named Bassasare Cusa, who's from Naples, and he's a good friend of Giovanni de Medici. You're going to hear a lot about these guys in a little bit. Um, what? They're what? They're such a good family. They're such an awesome family. Next week we're going to talk about the Medicis, the, the Borgias, and the Habsburgs, because, because suddenly everything has become a family up there. And, 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 uh, <laughs> In the Renaissance. It's a, it's a really tight-knit, warm, fuzzy moment in history. <laughs> but he's a good friend of these Medicis over here, and uh, and so he's like, oh, let's get together a, 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 a new council, and we'll get this figured out. We're going to get together with the top people from Avignon. So this way we're going to be, you know, ecumenical. We're all going to get along. And we're going to go to neutral Pisa, and we're going to talk about this. Pisa isn't picking sides. It, it's not picking sides, so... Technically, you got a little orangey bit right over there. I was going to say, they're in blue. Yeah, they're in blue. Well, because the Holy Roman Empire says, yeah, we're neutral, but we don't want to talk about this. So get away from us. So they're going to go to Pisa, and they're going to figure this out. They decide, tell you what, the way to do this is to ask both popes to step down. All right? You guys both step down. We're going to get a new guy that everybody agrees with. Case closed. So, Spanish Pope sitting in France. Please step down. Venetian Pope sitting in Rome, please step down. And then we're going to put a Cretan Pope and then a Pope. He's from Crete. Nobody could possibly be upset with that, right? Is there five first Pope? Yeah, well, there is. <laughs> but this is great because now everybody's satisfied. Yay! <laughs> Except neither one would step down. So now you have three Popes. So now you have three Popes. <laughs> now you have three Popes. One in Rome, one in Avignon, and one in Pisa, all of which have been officially officially installed by the Catholic Church. And all of which, because, if you understand the, the ecclesiology of it, all of which say, I am the only vicar of Christ on earth. 
I am God to you. God speaks only through me. Do you not have a chair? Actually, um, there's really only one special magic chair in Rome, but Evignon has a special magic chair too. Pisa, I guess, is building one. You know, I, I guess we got I, I was thinking I was going to sit in the special magic chair in Rome. Um, now we got to build one. All right, so Pope Alexander, the new pope, the new new pope, I don't know, to try to say I'm actually popishly pope, I'm going to make a whole bunch of proclamations, because that's what popes do. All right, so he declares Duke uh, Louis II of Anjou to be the new king of Naples, because as that's what I always think of, you know, you've got a French helper who likes you, what do you do? You give him land. So you go, yes, Naples is now green. It's now Supporting the Pisan Pope because why not? He also said all writings by John Wycliffe should be burned. Anything John Wycliffe has ever done should be burned. And in the same decision, he says, I'm excommunicating Jan Hus, follower of John Wycliffe. We'll talk about that in a second. He reigned for a grand total of 10 months, then died. So now he's succeeded by a Neapolitan Pope, a noble uh, named Cardinal Bassasari Cosa. Does that sound familiar? This is the guy that actually set up the whole piece of thing. This is the guy that pushed for that, and he's like, oh, I guess I'm going to have to be Pope now. <laughs> so uh, he is extremely potent, extremely powerful, in part, again, because of the Medicis, but also because he's a highwayman. He's got ties to this gang of robbers that have been you know, beating people up and taking their stuff on the highways. So he's got a lot of money behind him, which is why he got the papacy. Classy guy, this guy. Reigned in that boat for five years and made the Medicis the official bank of the papacy. Think about what that does for you. All the money going to the papacy goes through you and you get a cut of it. The Medicis start getting crazy rich. Crazy rich. He also was an atheist. Is that a problem for a pope? Is that going to be a problem? I don't know if that's going to be a problem. That might be a problem. He is extremely open about the fact that the only reason he was doing this is it's a good racket. I mean, this is, you make a lot of money being a pope. He was very open about that anywhere. In fact, his own, his own secretary later was like, yeah, this was kind of a down moment for the papacy because he didn't you care about it. You're a vicar of Christ if you don't even believe in God. Um, I had a uh, religion teacher in college who was an elder in his church. He didn't think there was actually a God, but he said, it makes me feel good. It makes people feel good to feel like there's a God. So my job is to help people. It makes me feel good to go through the motions that I grew up with as a child in Germany. He's German. Uh, it, it, uh, it makes me feel good, and it makes me feel like there's structure to the universe. So I actually, I, I, have, I have a background with people who, who are religious leaders who don't actually believe there's a God, but because they say, well, there's something to be said for the structure. Um, Kosa basically is like, Structure nothing. I can make a lot of money, and my buddies can make a lot of money off of this, which is essentially L. Ron Hubbard's argument, wasn't it? L. Ron Hubbard is like, if you really want to make a lot of money, make up a new religion. That's essentially what uh, what John the twenty uh, third is doing here. At the Council of Constance, John the twenty third was convicted, convicted, not just charged, but convicted with witnesses and and things of heresy, simony, sodomy, tyranny, incest, piracy, schism, and immorality. They said, no, you're pretty much guilty of those. He was charged with other things, but he was actually found guilty what's, of these. What's simony? If you remember, simony is when you charge somebody for a blessing. Uh, whether you, you say, if you give me money, I'll give you a, a post as a cardinal. Or if you give me money, I will bless you in the name of Jesus. Named after 
Simon Magus. Yeah, Simon Peter, when he said, I, if, I, if, you, if I give you money, will you give me this Holy Spirit? And so um, he was very open about, about those things. Again, if you remember, from a church history standpoint, the Renaissance is basically ramping up to the Reformation. There's a reason why people went, oh, oh, that's gin. I'm just done with this. All right. Um, 1414, since we talked about the Council of Constance, let's talk about the Council of Constance, because councils fix everything, right? This is important. We're going to deal with this schism once and for all. If you'll notice, five years earlier there was a council that was going to deal with this schism once and for all. But this time they're going to deal with the schism once and for all. It's going to make it go away because councils fix everything. Zygmunt comes up and he goes, I am sick of all this politicking. I'm sick of all this. We're going to make this right. We're going to fix it. There's so much other stuff going on. We need to get this part right. I am so trying to fix the world with swords and councils. I'm going to make this so work. So is Zygmunt a good guy? It's basically. good. Ish. Yeah, ish. Taking a cue from Pisa, they said, okay, Benedict, Mr. Avignon Pope, Gregory, Mr. Roman Pope, John, Mr. Pisa Pope, we'd like you to step down, right? And we're going to put in a new, new, new oh, Pope. No. It's going to work this time. <laughs> it's going to, you just stop it. It's going to work. What? If he was convinced. Has he already been convicted of all those? No, this is actually when he gets convicted of all this stuff. So he's like, you're going to step down no matter what. We'll talk about that in a quick second. It actually worked-ish. Both Gregory and John resigned. In fact, John was convicted of all these things, but escaped because the Medici's helped him. They, they, they disguised himself like a mailman and slipped out. And then they hit him. You, know, you go, well, okay, so he makes it through. Never gets a problem. Every once in a while you sit there and you go, that's just not right with history. And this is one of those, that's just not right. This guy's slime and he makes it through. Anyway, but so he gets convicted. He's not going to be Pope anymore no matter what. But he gets out. Benedict says, no, I'm still Pope. By the way, since the other guy stepped down, I'm totally still Pope. In fact, I'm the only Pope. I'm the only Pope who was made Pope before there was a schism. Because the Council of Cardinals made me Pope and then they did a schism. But I've been Pope the whole time. I'm the Popishly Pope. I get to stay Pope. Uh, but only Aragon uh, agreed with that. They're the only people that said, yes, we still think you're Popishly Pope. Everybody else is like, no, you're not. And so he, he runs off to Aragon saying, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be taken in. In fact, uh, King Alfonso V is the guy that took him in. Alfonso is a knight of the Order of the Dragon. So to see how this, how this goes. But that also says something about what the Order of the Dragon has been doing over the last you know, six years, starts off in Hungary and Wallachia and Transylvania over there to the far right of the map, and the, and the king of Aragon, over on the far left of the map, is an order of the dragon knight. This is getting popular, right? All throughout Europe. So now he's safely over there in Aragon. Everybody else says, we are happy to have the actual pope in, in Italy. That's great. We're all Roman now. Everything's great. Let's install a new, new pope. And an interesting thing happens as a result of all this. The council says, well, since we're the ones that keep deciding all this, technically, that means we've got more authority than the Pope. Councils have more authority than Popes, because we're the ones that keep deposing and installing Popes. Councils fix everything. In fact, there's a whole movement that they call the conciliar movement, or conciliarism, the council movement, that says, oh, councils, this is great. 
weren't strong on a home to poke. And with Zygmunt, when all of his strength on their side, that actually sticks for a little bit. A little bit. Just a smidgy bit. A couple of years. Eventually that gets kicked out. But by, by the time you get to what, Julius II, the, poly, the pope that was with Michelangelo and the whole Sistine Chapel, Sistine Chapel thingy, um, he officially says, yeah, enough with that. No, total supremacy of the pope. But even before that, this is going to fall apart. But they're installing a new, new, new pope, Martin V, this important Roman noble. Yes, technically he had been once excommunicated by uh, Gregory, but it was because he'd supported John, who nobody likes anyway. But that way he's roundly annoyable to everybody. <laughs> nobody likes him, so he's the perfect pope. And he's also very powerful and very rich. So this will work. Does he believe a guy? Yeah, actually. Which is a silly point at this, at this stage in history. One of the first official acts, because theology is important, is he's like, I am condemning Janus. This guy gets condemned, and everybody who follows him, and everybody who, teaches, who follows the teachings of Wycliffe and his law lords, all of you get condemned, because we are cleaning house. We're going to make a, a, a pure and holy Roman Catholic Church. Enough with this triple pope. Everybody seems to believe their own thing. We're all going to be one church again. Has any of those Bibles been preserved? Preserved them? Um, yeah, I mean, we have bits and pieces of it, yeah. Uh, in fact, if, uh, I, I don't know. We have bits and pieces of that, like the first, first, first ones. But uh, some of the ones in like the early 1500s, we got good whole extant copies of them. Okay. Yeah. So it's pretty they were calm for it to be burned. I just yeah. Well, not all of them did. In fact, this will be kind of fun because we'll see why some of them didn't get burned. Is that okay, anybody ever hear of Yanus? Yeah. On the Hussites? Okay, good. Because these guys are important here. Uh, so let's talk about Yanus. Because. He's important here, and not everybody knows about Jan. Bohemian, so he's he's a he's uh, a Czech. He speaks Slavically, um, and he is an excellent theologian, and he's a really good preacher. He's so good that they give him a pulpit at the University of Prague, where he starts teaching the teachings of Wycliffe, because he says, "Now that I've read the Bible, Wycliffe makes sense to me." Anybody remember what were some of the things Wycliffe was saying? Yeah, I, well, that was part of it. I mean, the, every Paul boy should read. Everybody should be literate, but why? Well, I meant to read the Bible. To read the Bible, yeah. Everybody should be able to read the Bible in their own language. What else about Wycliffe? What else did he teach? Anybody remember anything? Well, obviously, not transubstantiation. Not, that was a gimme because we just talked about that. So not transubstantiation. Uh, he's like, no, it's it's a, an extremely important, extremely profound remembrance. But it is not the physical blood and body. What else? Anybody remember from last week? Or anybody know anything about Wycliffe? Sigh. Okay. Um, one of the main things that they taught was every Christian's a priest. We're a kingdom of priests. Every Christian is supposed to be living this out. Um, the idea that there's some sort of unique group. These guys are supposed to read the Bible. These guys are supposed to pray. These guys are supposed to talk to God. These guys are supposed to tell people truth. You're just supposed to be a plowman. You're just supposed to be a barber. You know, no, 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 no. Every Christian should be telling people about Christ. Every Christian should be praying. Every Christian should be doing this sort of thing. Um, Jan started preaching the exact same stuff. Every Christian. Which means that if there is a particular group that is making a ton of money off of doing what every Christian should be doing, that might be a problem. Right? Maybe they're doing something wrong. 
So Pope Gregory, back when he was still Pope, censures Jan, says, this is bad. You don't get to preach that anymore. In fact, he told Good King Wenceslas, not. <laughs> not that Good King. That's, good King Wenceslas from the song was like 400 years, 500 years prior to this. Completely different Good King Wenceslas. Put pressure on Good King Wenceslas of Bohemia to stop it. Say, hey, you don't, tell him he doesn't get to preach this stuff anymore. So you're a Wenceslas. What do you do? Pardon me? Stop him. Well, it makes sense what his belief is. It does. Yeah. He liked Hus, and he didn't like Zygmunt, who was his younger brother. It's like, in fact, Zygmunt had already thrown him into jail once because Zygmunt wanted his crown. And so he's like, all right, you know what? I don't like Zygmunt. Zygmunt likes Rome. I don't like Zygmunt. And I like Hus. I'm supporting Hus. And the more you tell me I have to censure him, the more I'm like, I'm giving him cake. <laughs> you, want, you want a pulpit? Have a pulpit. I'll sculpt you a really nice pulpit. No, you really need to stop him. You want some paper so you can write stuff on? I'll give you paper. Whatever you need. Because I don't like the people who are telling me to shut you up. And I really kind of like you. And I want to give Wenceslas credit is because of the level of his support of the Hussites. It wasn't just a, ah, stick it to Zygmunt. I mean, he, he really did buy into this. He really did believe that he gave them large chunks of land to, to support them and things. He really did believe what, what Hus was, was teaching. So he actively supports Hus, which gets everybody condemned. Uh, 1409, this new pope, or new, new pope, Alexander V, condemned Wycliffe's teaching and then excommunicated Hus. It's like, that's it. You're not just, you're not just, we're not just saying what you say is naughty. You are no longer part of the Christian church. You are now off on your own. You're going to go burn in hell. Now, part of why he did this is because he didn't like Hus, didn't like what Hus was teaching. And part of it is that Wenceslas was his political rival. And so he's like, this way I can stick it to Wenceslas, because Wenceslas has been supporting Hus, so I get to jab Wenceslas. Ha, ha, ha. Ha. Because that's not going to come back to bite me in the butt, right? So I'm going to go do that. Because Naples had supported Gregory and Martin, John called for a crusade against the region backed for backing the wrong popes. So he's like, there's going to be, spirit of this mind, there's, there's going to be a crusade against Naples. It's not that they're not Christians. It's not even that they're heretics. They're just backing the wrong pope. So another pope says, crusade on them. I'm totally smoting him. This is a really warped part of history, all right? When, when popes are calling crusades on other popes, not because they're heretical, but because they dare to call themselves popes. And so John says, crusade against Naples. Now, you remember, John may not have as much resources as Rome, because he's over there in Avignon. So what do you do? You pay for it by selling indulgences in Bohemia. Because he's like, Nobody likes Bohemia anyway. They're off doing their own wacky thing. Um, Pope Alexander has already said that the Bohemians are doing everything wrong. So tell you what, I will say any nobles that want to rape and murder any Hussites that they want knock, and take their stuffs, knock yourself out. Pay me enough money in advance, and I will give you an indulgence to do anything that you want to any Hussite that you want to do it to. Good plan? Good. Yes? No? Well, I mean, it's a good plan in that you get money. Bad plan in that it's naughty. It's naughty to say, 
If you give me enough money in advance, I will let you do horrible, horrible things to people I don't like. That are your brothers and sisters. That are your brothers and sisters. So this, like I said here, this torch off Wenceslas, pretty much everybody in Bohemia, they're like, we don't like you. We're sick of all you popes. Every pope is being snotty at us. We've got a succession of popes that have been kicking us in the shins. We're tired of this. We don't like it. So Hus speaks out against the excesses of all the popes. He's like, you all messed up. There's no pope that's any good anymore. There may have been popes that were good. I don't think that the papacy is a good concept. There may have been decent popes. We don't have it. We haven't seen a decent pope in years. By the way, I think if we've been studying history, we would kind of agree with them. We haven't seen a decent pope in a long time here, but this time in history. So, 1415, we're at that Council of Constance, because we had to kind of back up a little bit. We're at the Council of Constance. Hus is being called in on charges of heresy. What with the fact that he's saying naughty things about the Pope, and apparently you can't say naughty things about the Pope, right? Now, if you are called in, if I say, Michael, I would like to charge you with heresy. By the way, we've been burning people for heresy. We burned Randy the other day. <laughs> We'd like you to come in and chat with us. Right. Now, what's the chance that Michael's going to go, well, I'll buy a ticket and I'll be right there. Would you do that? Okay. Zygmunt, who is a stand-up guy, he's a bit of a torp, but he's a stand-up guy, says, I will give you safe conduct. I promise you safe conduct. In my name, as, as the king, nothing's going to happen to you. Even if you are found guilty, what we need to do, the whole reason I'm calling this Council of Constance is to get things right. You will be able to walk away, I promise. I've got it in writing. You can walk away. But you need to come and deal with this. We need to get everything on the table. We need to talk it through. Would you do that under those circumstances? You know? All right. All right, I'll go in. Who goes, all right, I'm going to come in. I'm going to come in. They seem to want to talk. They actually, I'm not trying to be a rebel. They want to talk, and I really want to get truth heard. This is the best opportunity I have. So he gets up there, and he's like, this is a whole big ecumenical council. All the bishops and everything are here, all the cardinals. I'm going to give my biblical rationale for what I believe. This is the best hearing I've had thus far. It's the biggest pulpit I've had. I can do the most good for Christ. And so he's found guilty of heresy and burned at the stake. So did Sigmund even try? Sigmund was incredibly mad. He did try. He's just like, wait, 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 wait. Time, time, time. I promised. I promised him. I promised him he wouldn't. No, you can't do this. In fact, even before he was taken to the stake, he was taken off to, to jail getting ready to be burned, and Zygmunt is like writing letters and pounding on doors and going, you can't do this. I gave my promise. It's tacky. It's wrong. It's immoral. Um, nobody's ever going to come forward again if you promise safe conduct and then you don't give them safe conduct. And there's 147 different reasons why this is the wrong thing to do. But Who especially was? Martin. New, okay. new, new, new Pope Martin argued but a, a promise made to a heretic means nothing. There's nothing binding about a promise made to a heretic. In fact, later on, Martin even made it a point of saying, any ruler that wants to kill any heretic or heathen has every God-given right to do so, even if they're peaceful. Men, women, children, even if they are not rebelling against the state, if the ruler wants to kill them, it's okay, because they're pagans. They belong in hell anyway. We think ISIS is bad. Well, A, yes, and we'd be right. <laughs> but B, yeah, there's a point. In, 
And this is what people love to point to. They love to point to this point in history and say, see, Christianity is just as bad. You know, well, ish. I mean, there's at least there's a little difference. Uh, but yes, there's a, there's a point where you're just going, yeah, we're pretty much just offing anybody we disagree with. And that's not the way it should be. On the plus side, we still have a lot of people like the Lawlers, the Hussites, and everything jumping up and down going, that's not the way it's supposed to be. That's not what the Bible says we should do. This is wrong. They keep getting killed, but yeah. <clears throat> um, when all the stuff just recently with the Pope now, mm -hmm. and the um, one that just, Benedict, that mm -hmm. just um, resigned, and then there, they made a big, this one program I listened to made a really big deal about how there's two Popes and how yeah. it's like the end of the world. But yeah. These people had, well, they didn't know the Bible, but they had the thought as the end of the world as many Popes as we've had. I mean, if that yep. was any indication of anything. Yep, we, we were actually talking about that when it happened. I, I think I put a, I think I put a picture up of, of I think was it Elvis writing the, the the Loch Ness monster or something. I'm like, it's this level of what you know for for Catholics because you say the only way you get to stop being pope is to die because you are the right. pope until you die. The last pope to resign was back here and, and, and things. So the but the official Catholic stance on history is that the other guys were anti popes. They weren't really popes. They couldn't be really popes because you can only have one pope at a time. You know, well, but the same people made three different popes at the same time. No, no, no. They made a pope, and then they made a series of antipopes. We know that they weren't really pope because you can't have more than one pope at a time. You see how that goes? Mm -hmm. So there were not three popes at the same time. There were not three papacies. There was one papacy and a couple of things that were upstarts. Right. I just I find it interesting sometimes when we want to put news. Yeah. to interpret the Bible instead of the mm -hmm. Bible interpreting. It is and, and I'm back to Ecclesiastes saying, ain't nothing new under the sun. I mean, this is pretty much, you know, this, is part, this isn't just supposed to be fun stuff. This is stuff where we go, give yourself some background. The stuff that we deal with now, whether it's ISIS or papal crises or churches going, yeah, no, I'm a Christian. It's that I show up on Sunday, I do my thing, and then I go away. I'm a Christian. You know, yeah, you do realize all those things happened before. I mean, all those things have their roots in history. All these things are stuff that the church has been dealing with for centuries. Nothing new under the sun. How are you going to deal with that? Um, and when we say, oh, we can overcome it. Sure we can. Bear in mind, you might, you might get burned at the stake a lot, though. But that doesn't mean you can't be an overcomer. If I recall, a lot of the overcomers in Revelation were dead guys, right? So you just got to decide what you mean by victory. Is it that you go... Everything will be okay, and everything will run the way we want it to. If that's what you're looking for for victory, maybe not. But if by victory you mean truth will out, God's truth will continue, um, you can stand through all the midst of all this wackiness and still help hold your faith, sincere and true, yeah. You know, that's a really good question. I don't know. I don't know. I didn't. I didn't even think to look that up. That's an excellent question. She was asking, is, because he had this wonderful pulpit, was there anybody that became a Hussite because of what he said? Um, I do know that it was a wonderful articulation of his theology, and as a result, the Catholic Church had an official document explaining all of his biblical rationales as to why he was right and they were wrong, which is swell. Um, but that's a good question. I will try to find that out. That's an excellent question. All right. So. The sites. They're like, um, we're on the run now. I mean, which 
we, our, our leader just got burned. So they all retreat to Bohemia, and Wenceslas gives them sanctuary. It's like, yeah, you can come here. Uh, you're, this is a safe place. But you can see where they're like, uh, Hunt, what do you do? When he dies in 1419, what happens now? Your, the guy who's taking care of you dies. By the way, his brother becomes the new king of Bohemia. Zygmunt is now the king of Bohemia. The guy who is in charge of rooting out your Hussite rebellion is now the king. Not a good time to be a Hussite, if you think about it. Especially when Martin calls for a crusade against the Hussites. He's like, we are going to, to, to nail these guys. Now, I'll give Zygmunt credit. There's a couple different ways of looking at this. Personally, I think, from what I was reading, Zygmunt really didn't want to do this. Because he's like, I promised Huss he'd be okay, and then we had to kill him. It bugs me. So even though you're telling me I have to do the crusade, I will do it, but my heart is not in this. Uh, I disagree with the Hussites, and I want a united church, but it bugs me that you're asking me to take out these people when I've given their promise and we, we ignore the promise we gave. Everything I read would seem to suggest that, that Zygmunt's like, don't want to do it, but I'm going to go hunt them all down and I'm going to kill them all, because that's what I have to do, because the Pope says I had to. Wacky fun. So you get the Hussite Wars that went on for about 15 years. Two things, though, make this a little difficult when it comes to this. Um, number one, the Ottoman Turks invade Eastern Europe. Remember me just talking a second ago about when the Ottoman Turks invaded? Mid-1400s, the Ottoman Turks invade, they, they take Constantinople, they, they start taking Slovakia, they take uh, Hungary, um, they take Wallachia. In fact, it was Wallachia, um, they, they kidnap Vlad II's son, who would become Vlad Tepish. And they torture him for years, and he finally gets away, turns on them, and actually pushes them out of Wallachia. And the, and, the, and the legend was, he must have made some sort of a deal with the devil to get them out of his area, which is another thing that Bram Stoker said, <laughs> which is when it became vampire. So the whole background of Dracula, the historical background of this, was Vlad Tepish in Eastern Europe pushing out the Turks, okay, at this point in history. So you get this Turkish wave that is coming in, uh, and attacking Hungary. So Zygmunt's like, I, half my forces, two-thirds of my forces, I've got to keep the, the Turks out. So they're constantly over on the right side of Hungary fighting the Turks, leaving me only a smaller chunk of my forces. Secondly, the Hussites are really, really good at this. I mean, there are not a bunch of monks sitting around that you can kick over. I mean, the Lollards sitting there in England and even in, 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 uh, in Holland and stuff, they're a bunch of shopkeepers and and scholars and things, and when we kill them, they go, no, these guys are tough. These guys dig in. They got a bunch of soldiers and people here. Because for years, we've been kicking Bohemia in the shins. There's a lot of people in Bohemia that go, well, enough of that. And so when, when Jan Hus came along and said, you know, I think the papacy's messed up, there were a lot of soldiers who went, I know. These guys are really, really tough. There are two big branches of the Hussites at this, at this point in history. One was called the Utraquists, um, and they're seeing themselves as theological Hussites. They're like, we're, we're all about the theology of Jan Hus. That name comes from the Latin Utraque Specie, which uh, means both kinds. Because what they argued was that Christians should be able to take both the bread and the wine in communion. Both kinds, both parts of it. That's what you should do in communion. Does that make sense? Well, some of you are frowning. What's the problem? Yeah. 
priests are the only ones who should be able to take the drink. They're the only ones holy enough to take the blood of Christ into them. You can't do that. You'd burn. That's still true. It's still true. Now, technically, Vatican II said that priests should do it either way. A large number of churches still do it this way, where only the priest drinks. Now, the running joke, a, a buddy of mine who's Catholic was telling me, the running joke is that the priest likes to do it this way and encourages this because he has to finish whatever's in the cup. So you pour enough for everybody in the congregation, and then you suggest, you know, I don't think there's enough for the rest of you here. That's, that's the running joke in, 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 in Catholic circles. And you go, well, that's a lot of respect for communion and for your priest. I don't think that that's the rationale here, but that that's the way you joke about it. Okay, I'm not. I have a question for you. Sorry. I have a question for you about this. Uh, when I would go to Mass with my friend Mary Beth, I asked her that because a lot of them didn't take the wine. And she said that for her and her family, I always explained it that you didn't need more Christ. You already had Christ from the body. And I didn't know if that was their family's interpretation or I've heard multiple interpretations there's that there's if you're always left a little wanting then you want Christ more so if you take the the body but you know you also really want the blood then you're always left with wanting more of Christ and that's a good place to be is wanting more of Christ um, the original rationale was if you are not holy like a priest taking the blood of Christ in you is going to be damaging um, there was another theological rationale that said um, to take the blood of Christ from Scripture, ironically, it was, in, it was in response to like the Lawlers and the Hussites, said if you take the blood of Christ in you, that's what washes you clean once and for all. Since you can never be washed clean once and for all, you cannot take the blood of Christ in you. You have to continue taking communion so that you can remain saved. You can't just be clean once and for all, therefore you cannot take the blood. Except if you're a priest. Yes, but they're already automatically saved. What's really interesting is to read, like, um, there was there were several, around this time in history, there were several classic books against witchcraft and werewolves and vampires and all the stuff that's floating around out there, because you know, those all exist, obviously. Um, and, and the running argument was everybody's in danger except priests. Because obviously it's not like you could hurt a priest. Um, it's not like a, a, a witch could ever do anything against a priest because they're God's anointed, they're God's special people. Um, there's nothing that you could do to tempt a priest, which I found amusing. Um, there's there's nothing that you could ever do to tempt a priest because they have the blood of Christ in them, what with drinking it every week. But you have to, for the laity, you have to make sure you keep sacrificing Jesus week after week after week and applying that to your case because it's not like it ever stops. I mean, that's that's the official. That's why. I mean, again, think about what excommunication means. What does that word mean? It means you are outside communion. Therefore, since you can no longer, Christy, since you can no longer take communion because you have been excommunicated, you will burn in hell because you have to keep taking communion. You have to keep resacrificing Jesus every week or else you don't retain your Christianity. So if I separate you from the ability to keep sacrificing Jesus every week, you'll burn in hell. That's why they didn't want people to read the Bible. Yeah. It's an argument. Why not? Again, again, no, it's okay, okay. back up. There's also going to be people that sit there and say, there's a lot of priests that haven't read the Bible at this time. A lot of cardinals that haven't read the Bible at this time. Because remember, this is before the printing press and stuff. 
So it's not just people being malicious, it's people having a really warped view of this. They genuinely, I want to give credit, there are a lot of priests, a lot of cardinals who genuinely believe they understand scripture and it would be inherently dangerous for other people to try to interpret it. But maybe, so let's do it the opposite direction of it. This is why when Peter Waldo or John Wycliffe or Jan Hus or later on Martin Luther or Jean Calvin or Menno Simons or Erasmus, anytime that these guys actually read the Bible, they go, I think we're doing this wrong. When people are actually, with anybody who has any kind of decent moral backbone, any kind of a brain, is actually reading the Bible, in this point in history, they, they go, uh, we're doing it wrong. I mean, other people, you got, you got atheists, popes, going, yeah, yeah, whatever. But when people who actually have decent moral character come along, they're like, yeah, we can't. Intelligences? Where do you get that from scripture? This is horrible. We can't do this. So, anyway, the other branch of the Hussites were called the Taborites, because they're based in the city of Tabor. But these guys were like, we hate the Pope. I mean, it's not that they didn't buy into the theology, but they're like, instead of thinking of ourselves theologically as Hussites, we're basically Hussites because Jan Hus hated the Pope, Pope killed Hus, we'll kill the Pope. Now, these, these, these are the guys who see themselves as tough guy reformers. The Zealots. Like, kind of like the Zealots, where you sit there and you go, you go uh, so you, you, you're, you're a big fan of, of God and Yahweh, and you think the Romans are bad? You think the Romans are bad? You know, that's, sure, God, sure, yeah, but basically I want to kill Romans. Zealots. Taborites. Yeah, yeah, Hus, yeah, yeah. Kill Popists. So, um, Tabor had a bunch of gold mines, and so they used the wealth of that to carve out their own kingdom, this Moravian kingdom over here. Um, and they were hard to pull out. They're like ticks dug in. And so Zygmunt is coming in with what troops he had. They're carving out whole chunks of Zygmunt's territory. And they keep beating him. The church launches three crusades against the Hussites and loses all three of them. The Hussites keep beating the church over and over and over again. They're like, nuts, nuts, nuts. So, so then did the, the Utraquists or whatever, did they hang out with the Tamarites so they were safe there? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay. Now, without going into too much, there's a little bit of friction where they're like, you need to make sure your theology is right, and you need to say thank you more. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, it's, it's kind of like the modern the the, the modern um, discussion that we have when when people sit there and go conscientious objector. That's swell, but the only reason you can live in a country where you can be a conscientious conscientious objector is because people like me have fought to get you the right to be conscientious objectors, right? So, so for you to sit there and go, baby Keller, maybe you should probably just say thank you, you know, that kind of thing. Um, and of course, the other side around where people sit there and go, I still think it's wrong to kill. I thank you that you have the, the guts to go to a battlefield. I still think it's wrong to kill. I mean, there's positive ways of doing this, but it's just, yeah, there's a little bit of that tension within the sites. In fact, by the time they've kind of settled in, what? By the, time, by the time they've kind of settled in and the Catholics are going, nuts, we can't get the Hussites out. Uh, by the time you get to the mid uh, 15th century, the Hussites have, have kind of reformed themselves. They're like, we don't have to be so militant anymore because now we're a generation into it. We can kind of nestle in. We're just Moravians. You know, are you that band that took over Moravia? No, we are the Moravians. That's what it is. And so they turn toward pacifism and they start, they start calling themselves simply the unity of the brethren or what we other people have called and we remember them as the Moravian Christians. If you've ever heard that term, the Moravians, Moravia is actually 
it's an area. The church I go up to in now at this time calling the Moravians is kind of like talking about Polish Christians or German Christians I mean, it's just the area but, but there's now kind of a, a, a whole um, <coughs> denomination thank you yes mm -hmm. yeah yeah um, by the way later on the Moravians emphasized pietism and we're going to talk about what that means but that pietism of the Moravians made a foundation for the Evangelical Covenant Church. So for the first time, we actually have a tie into our church's actual honest to goodness history, as with these Moravian Christians that start off <laughs> as take rights going around slaughtering people, but for Jesus. <laughs> Wacky fun. Love history. Anyway, turn of the century. By the time you get to 1500, there's 100,000 Moravian Christians worshiping in 400 different churches, 90% of the Czech population as Moravian Christians, as Hussites. <coughs> this is before the Reformation, right? Again, we love to paint in big, broad, bold, black lines. You know, everything stunk until Martin Luther, shkunk, Reformation. Well, not exactly. Uh, we've had the, Wald the Waldensians, we've had uh, the Hussites, we've had the Lollards. We had we, China way back. We had China, poor China. China was rocking until it wasn't anymore. Central Asia was rocking until the Mongols came along and took them all out. So, I mean, yes, there are all sorts of different kind of reformation. Well, for that matter, you had, oh, never mind. okay, but you had like Genghis Khan and people like that, you go, close to being a Christian. Almost could have been a Christian. Okay, what country is this? Moravian? Moravian? Yeah. The Moravian? Right this is like Poland, Hungary, that, that area. This, yeah. The Catholic Church continues to persecute them, can never quite dig them out. But they're, this is another one of those groups that just like, remember the Albigensian crusade over here in France where it's like for stinking ever, they just kept killing Albigensians? They're going to keep fighting Hussites throughout. Martin, though, because okay. we're talking about Martin, Martin, though, to make a point, digs up the body of John Wycliffe and burns him at the stake just so that it goes on record that he died by execution by the Catholic Church. He, he had like a stroke while he was preaching. No! He burned him at the stake! Uh, 30 years after he died, you burned him at the stake. Does that count? Yes! I don't think it does. Yes, yes it does. <laughs> died by burning. Now, I'm pretty sure that stroke and 30 years of burial killed him. Uh, he was yeah, pretty dead. I mean, there quite a bit, because I thought I'd read a few places where he was burned at the stake. Cause he was! how I thought he died. He was burned at the stake. That's not oh. Okay. See, that's, that's, that's a good PR campaign, is wow. what you're talking about there. 1431, Martin then convened a new council, because councils fix everything, where he forced the cardinals to say, no, no, the Pope is supreme over all the world, unquestionable. Unquestioned and unquestionable sovereign of the church. He's over the councils. And they went, okay. And in about, I don't know, 70 years, uh, Pope Julius is going to make that even a stronger statement. All right, let's end with this. 1415, two kings fighting crucial battles. First king. Portuguese king, Henrique de Aves, uh, or Henry the, the Navigator, um, seized a coastal city in North Africa. This is huge. Huge. Because this is the beginning of Portuguese expansion. If you remember, Portugal has been sitting there on the coast of Spain going, we're Portuguese, we talk it different, you know, for years. And they can't seem to grow their territory at all, in part because they're right by Castilla, which keeps getting bigger, and they're like, no, we're just holding our own, so we've got to go to another continent to grow. 
For the next 500 years, the Portuguese expand and expand and all sorts of different things. But the reason this is really huge is they're expanding into North Africa, where they keep the black people. So slavery is alive and well in Europe, but for the first time, it's race-based slavery. And so they're going to bring back Africans, sold to them by Africans, because slavery is alive in Africa. Africans have been enslaving Africans all over the place. Europeans have been enslaving Europeans all over the place. Now you've got Europeans enslaving Africans. There was a point where like a tenth of the population of Lisbon was slaves from Africa. And there's this big, but for the first time it's going to be race-based and very quickly it's going to be you're a slave because of the color of your skin. And that has never been that way in history until the Portuguese. Same year, Henry V fights a significant battle at Agincourt in France. We're going to talk about that next week. But as you look at this point in history, how would you summarize it? I mean, you sit there and you go, okay, that was fun. It's a lot of information. I feel like a canary drinking out of fire hydrant. Fine. I never expect you to remember all of it. What is the snapshot you get of this point in history? What's, what does it feel like? What do you learn from it? Church, yeah. No Hussites. <laughs> the Hussites also had some weirdness and were thrown around slaughtering people too, but yes. Okay. Yay Hussites. Than, yeah. When you remove scripture I'll even amend that to when you remove scripture. You remove it from, if the priests don't read it, if you've got a Pope who doesn't even believe it, if you've got this is what happens. In the name of Jesus, you run around doing stuff and you go, but the people doing stuff in the name of Jesus aren't even the ones reading the Bible. They're not the ones who know. When you remove scripture from the equation, bad stuff goes down. Do you understand? And I know you do, but i got to say it like this. Do you understand why, as a church, we keep saying, please read your Bible. Please read your Bible every day. Please be in, in, in prayer with God every day. Everything I say in a sermon, check it against scripture and say, does this jive with what the Bible actually says? Because once you remove scripture from the equation, Everything falls apart. What were you guys going to say? I was just going to say that they, for uh, not reading the Bible as much, the, um, the power people were exactly the Pharisees of what Jesus was teaching. Mm -hmm. um, it was all power and money. Honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Yeah, we're doing this for Jesus. You go, Jesus has nothing to do with what you're doing this for. Michael, you were going to say something? Then let's close. Yeah, the, the love of money is through all kinds of people. And just thinking, how, how in the world do uh, Council of Cardinals elect an atheist pope? But who said it's because he had all this money behind him, mm -hmm. so I'm sure he paid his way in the papacy so that they had this whole council, and they think that they had the power, but they don't. The money had the power. Mm -hmm. And I'm sure that there were some cardinals that just got bought off. I'm sure there were other cardinals that said, this is a guy who's actually going to be able to accomplish things, because he actually has a war chest that he can do stuff with. This will be good for the church. I understand he may not be a Christian, but it will be good for the church. Uh, I, I'm sure that there are all sorts of levels of rationale behind it. But all this comes back to saying, if we just do this ourselves, if we just pull out enough swords, enough coins, enough whatever, we can fix this. Instead of really trusting God and following what his word says. It's kind of huge. Makes me think of when Israel wanted a king. Oh, that's a very good argument. The Israel's like, hey, if we just get a king, everything will be great. And God's like, like you're not going to like it. No, no, it'll be awesome. Everybody else got a king. Let's pray.
Dear Lord, I thank you. There are so many things that seem so up in the air, so chaotic in our modern age. So many things that we, we don't know what next year is going to bring economically. We don't know what's going on with ISIS in the Middle East. We don't know what's going on with Ebola. And there's so many things we can get so up in arms about. Lord, I pray, help us. Help us not just to trust in our own ability to get over it, our own ability to, to get through it. Help us not to, to ignore your word and give free reign to our anxiety and to our fears and to our own cockiness. But I pray, Lord, help us to, to seek you out and to be your ambassadors. The world is chaotic. Help us to be motivated to bring them your stability, your confidence, your consistency from your word. Give this to you in Jesus' name. Thank you very much. Thank you. It's not new for him. Yeah.